Welcome to episode 11 of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. My word, we have shot past the first 10, but today for the 11th, I am very excited to welcome a very special founder, David McDonough. Now, David is the founder and CEO of Common Stock, a community platform that makes investing social by amplifying insights from top investors. In October last year, they closed a $25 million Series A round led by Kochu, including the likes of QED investors Floodgate and Bill Ackman. Before Common Stock, David worked in product strategy and ventures at Google and was previously an investment analyst at Greenspring Associates. Well, David, I know after our chat only a few days ago, this is going to rock. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Alex. It is fantastic to be here um, and really excited to jam. Awesome. Now, David, when researching for this podcast, I'm aware you started investing right when the global economy was collapsing back in 2008, leading you to buy Citibank for a dollar. Talk me through this feat of ingenuity and how it ultimately led you to founding Common Stock. Yeah, uh, I think it's actually more topical than ever as we go through a the first market correction in a long time since actually 2008, 2009. And I think it's fascinating because so many market participants have never experienced any sort of correction. And the way that I got started was, um, you know, I, I appreciate the attribution to ingenuity, but it was probably more dumb luck than anything. I had graduated in 2008, right into the financial crisis. All my friends went to work at Lehman and Bear Stearns, and I was actually a uh, pre-med, planning on going to med school, trying to save money, and started a little investment club with my friends because we realized as markets collapsed during the global financial crisis, we need to understand how this whole stock market thing works. And so we created a, a little miniature club called TARP, uh, named after the Troubled Asset Relief Program, but ours was Team America Recession Police. And we would meet every morning and talk about what stocks to buy and just basically learn by doing. And I was looking at some of the banks, as, as some will remember, that were getting crushed and I thought Citibank was far too big to fail, and that a dollar was a reasonable buy. I think I ended up uh, buying $1,000 worth, and because of sheer dumb luck, time to the bottom, it went up 10x, uh, in, I think this was March 2009, and I was like, oh, wow, this investing thing is so easy. You just buy cheap stocks, and they go up. Uh, and, of course, that was a classic Dunning-Kruger effect, but it had gotten me really hooked, and not just on investing in in Citibank, but having skin in the game to learn about recessions, learn about uh, economics and markets, and you know, learning about uh, wealth versus labor and how to make money while you sleep, which I didn't previous to that know was a thing. So it was all very fortuitous, and really just right place at the right time. Uh, I was, at the time, didn't really know what a recession was. Uh, I was actually giving tennis and squash lessons on the side in New York City 
and a few hedge fund um, managers at the time asking me, David, do you understand what's happening in markets? Like I might have to sell my jet. And of course, I'm like poor right out of college, putting $5 a gas in my old Saab. Like, wow, they have a plane? I need to figure out this market thing um, and figure out what recessions are. So that was the genesis of all of it. And that group and those people who I used to invest with from TARP are still going strong to this day on common stock. And it just getting some skin in the game during the financial crisis, which was a generational buying opportunity for, for my demographic, was, um, again, right place, right time and started and changed my entire life and started my whole career. Wow, what a story. And I think Team American Recession Police. I'm actually quite sad that name didn't hold to the current common stock product today, David. <laughs> but otherwise, I know you were at Google um, for a while. And before you left in 2017 to build common stock full time, I know you taught yourself to code the prototype of your idea. Where did that final kick really originate from for you to go, right, that's it? I'm packing my things. It's now time to go all in. Yeah, and this was in 2017 when startups were in vogue, but it wasn't as easy to raise money as it has been in the past few years. Um, and so I had been at Google for about seven years, loved it, you know, objectively one of the greatest companies and places to work of all time. But I was part of a cog in this big machine, and I had taught myself to code years prior and just loved designing and building random little hacky side projects. And I built a few different things. I built a – I plugged into AngelList and another uh, – and Crunchbase and another company called Mattermark to build a tool for founders to help raise money and find VCs. And, and then my friends and I were still bantering all day, every day on Gchat and WhatsApp and iMessage about stocks. And I built this hacky little, when you know, one of my good friends was bragging about his, back then, his Tesla gains. Um, and I think was actually, he had invested in LaCroix early and was fuzz, I believe, and was, and was bragging about that. And I didn't really believe him. And I wanted a way to validate and verify who um, who was actually outperforming, who 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 really knew what they were talking about. And I had these two key insights. You know, one of which was markets are way more engaging and fun when you do them when you when you learn and talk about it with your friends. And also, as somebody who had taught themselves about markets on the internet, anywhere people talk about money or stocks or now crypto online immediately descends into chaos and garbage. And so I started building this really just a, a tool, a little hacky website so that I could prove that I was better than my friends. And that sort of went mini viral around my team at Google. Uh, I, I kept building it. A few other, you know, other teams at Google found out about it. And friends beyond my immediate social circle started asking me about it. And I also realized as Robinhood and Coinbase were starting to take off, again, this is 2015, 2016, you know, Wall Street Bets was a very different but very alive forum back then. And there were other subreddits that were taking off. And I just saw the future with great clarity that Robinhood's 
ability to reduce fees to nearly zero was going to usher in a massive new wave of retail market participation. And I, I knew that they would probably win the broker competition, but I wanted to build a platform. I, I saw the opportunity as I was on the internet and uh, these subreddits, the opportunity to, to build a, you know, a Bloomberg terminal for this group of retail investors that was, that I could, I, I saw the future was going to increase. And I, this is rare. I drastically underestimated the market opportunity. Um, I certainly couldn't have predicted COVID uh, would, would cause everybody to stay home. And, and I couldn't have, I, I knew that Robinhood would force TD and Schwab and Fidelity to reduce their fees. Um, but I, and so I knew there was, was going to be a wave, but by an order of magnitude, I under underestimated it. And so I basically to, to end this ramble, I, I realized that there was a huge opportunity to, and a huge demand for a platform that would actually incentivize quality information about markets and finance. And it's something that I've been incredibly passionate about my entire life that if we could improve people's access to good finance knowledge and make that engaging, we could help reduce a lot of the inequality in the world. I know this is a little bit idealistic, but that's a that was a journey that I was more than comfortable to give up the golden handcuffs at Google for knowing that even if it went belly up or exploded in a, in a month, in a year, in five years, it was something that I would be comfortable working on the rest of my life because that mission to improve people's financial health, that, that thing that I had gone through the prior 10 years, um, is just something that I, I believed in so much and, and felt very strongly and still feel very strongly about. And I think that's uh, one of the most critical aspects of, for any future founders out there. You know, you have no, I had no clue how difficult the journey would be. Just, again, by an order of magnitude, underestimated the sheer struggle of, of building anything and creating anything from zero. And the only way to really get through that and thrive is to just be irrationally obsessed about this mission and vision for the future um, and really genuinely love it because um, if you're in it for money or fame or anything else, you're going to churn pretty quickly. Yeah, I think that's terrific, David. I think there's a couple of points that I just want to pick up there. You, you first, you said that markets are way more fun when you talk about it with others. And I'm with you there, not only in an investing setting, but with anything you have a, a passion for and are able to ignite that excitement further when sharing a conversation with others. I think in, in my eyes, I see common stock as this elegant social network that layers on, on top of individuals' brokerage accounts. Explain to me, why you found this social model appealing from the outset. Yeah, so the original idea, the name, which just makes me cringe, the original name was actually Groupstake. And the idea was groups of friends could pool their money and buy the same things together. So really just bringing the investment club online. And the you know, started building that and realized there's actually an enormous amount of regulatory burden to people pooling their money together to invest in the same things. 
to have to use custodial accounts. It was a huge fiasco. Um, I wanted a way, you know, having seen the way people were talking about stocks on forums, I wanted a way to just weed out all the garbage and the noise, right? And it's, you know, back then Discord was taking off. It was all video games, Reddit, all of and Twitter, you know, social networks 1.0, 2.0 are have some perverse incentives where it's not about the quality. It's just about the, you know, the quantity or the extremism that gets rewarded. And when I think of things that are social with, you know, in real life friends or some meta layer to create social ties that actually incentivize quality, trusted, valuable information. That's where I saw the, the opportunity. And, and I think the future of social networks, right? That's what I hope at least because social networks have through these invert, these perverse incentives started really causing damage and don't need, I can, can wax poetic about that forever. But you know, that was the original idea was a, a platform that would tap into trust and quality for market knowledge, which is where you actually do. It's important to have, um, trusted insights versus video games where shit posting could be fine. And yeah, that, that original idea was we could pool our money. I realized that was going to be way too hard to do mechanically. I didn't think building a brokerage was going to work because you inherently bias the community if everybody is using the same brokerage and wasn't going to be able to compete with Robinhood on features And the people who are are the most experienced, the people who have decades of investing knowledge, aren't going to move all their money to a new brokerage just to to participate in a new community. And that was the genesis of the broker agnostic API layer, right? This social layer that's built on top of every other brokerage, uh, which now has a a buzzword called embedded finance. Um, Because the magic for me in any social network, any community is the intersection of people who know what they're doing and people who are looking to learn. And, you know, that diversity of experience, of thought, of perspective and strategy background, um, that only comes from supporting people across the investing and trading spectrum uh, at all levels and all brokerages. Yeah, you mentioned this idea of irrational obsession previously or at least irrational passion with entrepreneurship david how has this helped you continue the drive with common stock at least for when things do start to get hard yeah i don't um i don't want to get canceled for hustle porn but i (laughs) it just if you are like it's the weirdest thing and it's to be clear it's extremely unhealthy it is a, I'm, I'm going to butcher the movie quote, just up at dawn, uh, like would get excited for weekends because I, instead of going out to hang with friends, I could design a new feature or build something that I was excited about. And I've been doing that for, I think, literally five years now. And the, it's, you know, everyone talks about burnout and it's a very real thing, but I think burnout comes from when you're not inspired and doing what gives you energy. And for me, 
building this, like still to this day, gives me so much energy. This is a, I, I probably shouldn't admit this on air, but I stayed up until 5 a.m. last night just designing animations for new features that are coming out. Not intentionally, just because I started going down this rabbit hole and was so excited about new things that were rolling out and how cool they are. And it's it's so sad, right? And I guess part of this might be getting older where you don't socialize as much. Um, but I just, you become, it's, it is so rewarding and so much fun to positively impact random people, to help them improve their knowledge, to help people make money, to to build a team of people who are also as passionate, if not more passionate about the mission and what you're building. And it sounds so corny and cliche, but that is, I think that gives you a massive advantage if you are just so obsessed and in like, you know, my, my parents told me this all the time. If you love what you do, you won't work. And that's so corny, but it's real. And you know, there's, of course, tons of things that are not as energy giving or not as fun in in startup journeys, but the the benefits if you really love what you're building and and what you're doing far outweigh the, the like the emotional and psychological challenges. And by the way, you're also learning at just like such an absurdly rapid pace, and for the right people. God, that is just addicting, right? They're just like, I, the problem with Google is I felt stasis and I wasn't really learning or improving and that caused me all this anxiety. My job now is about a million times more difficult and more work, but it's so much more rewarding and enjoyable and that's hard to explain um, until you find something and I feel very lucky to have found something like that and, and still, you know, it's still early, who knows where it goes from here, but that journey is uh, if you if you if you like what you're doing and you can figure out you know for me it's designing new features and giving them to users and users you know finding value in those I, there's just nothing better. The big piece there, David, is passion, which you 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 mentioned, and I think it gives you the energy to continue the process over this extended period of time. We also see it with other high performers such as Musk, who are literally obsessed about making the change they intend to be part of i do want to go a little bit deeper into the common stock platform walk me through common stocks monetization strategy how does the company make money david what's uh what's revenue ebitda is that um a vacation spot no the (laughs) we we are pre-revenue right now we're really just focused on engagement and retention and building a product that that a core community of people are absolutely in love with. And that's where I actually, this is probably controversial, but I have actually tried to hold off on a lot of the hype and manic growth that a lot of consumer social startups uh, went full bore into over the past year. And I, I mean, I'm curious, Alex, if you've if you have any examples, but I have a hard time coming up with consumer social or network companies that experience this hyper, um, you know, this parabolic explosive growth and are able to actually sustain it because, and you see so many examples of that hyper manic growth, but it actually breaks 
the, any real organic community bonds, in my opinion, and it's short-lived, and you get this rapid ascension and then a quick drop-off. And I'm crystallizing more and more in this idea that the best way to build a really enduring social product, at least for the first formative years, is we're growing and growing very healthily, um, you know, 30 to 50% month over month. But it's almost like you don't want to overdo it because the second you get, you know, hundreds of thousands of new people, it breaks all of the dynamics of the existing community and not to mention your feature set. Um, and that's been the priority from the startup market and, and venture investors over the past few years. It's like light money on fire, grow, grow, grow at all costs. Um, who cares if it's sustainable and nobody's evil. It's just a combination, a perfect storm of incentives that drove that behavior that I feel sort of it was a it was a uh, contrarian take, and I've been you know uh, figuratively punched in the face and been like you know everybody's mad at you because you're not growing as much as you should be for so long. And but my opinion is well, let's focus on steady, stable, sustainable, long-term, enduring growth that is focused really on on just rabid engagement and retention build this white hot center of people who are addicted and that continues to compound where we have people who spend 40 to 60 you know the activated user spends over 45 minutes active per day you know 10 sessions per day and now feel like we're unstoppable because we have learned how to build something that people are truly obsessed with and then when you have that you can start to kind of grow at will um but again, this was this has been controversial and contrarian over the past few years, where I wanted to make sure we didn't, you know, grow too soon before we were ready to scale. Not like technically ready to scale, but almost more emotionally, psychologically, as a community, ready to to handle the influx of new users. Right? If you if you go to a a party and you know you're or you're at a restaurant having dinner, and all of a sudden, like a hundred people flood in off of a tour bus, you probably get up and, and take off and then the tour bus leaves and then the, the restaurant's empty. And so I don't know if this metaphor makes any sense at all, but that's where I just see all these examples of companies that are now seem like overnight successes that's put in a real, you know, years of time building an incredibly strong foundation of engagement and retention and love for the product and community. And, and then, and that's where you get the, the parabolic sustainable growth um, that happens organically versus like buying a bunch of new users. Yeah. You mentioned that 30 to 50% month for month growth there, David. And listen, I can only agree. You want to build this base of white hot users who aren't customers. They are fanatics. And then, the product itself, common stock, it turns into an obsession. You you mentioned there with how many times they're actually using the platform. And then the overall common stock brand literally turning into a religion. People are turning back to it day in, day out, because it is the hub of, of, of information, ideas, and ultimately friendship. So that's definitely something I can I can get behind. I think compared to other platforms such as say Twitter or Reddit, where Oftentimes it can get incredibly crowded and 
the quality of information is often lost, David. How does common stock separate the signal from the noise and ultimately differentiate itself? Yeah, so when I set out and, and my one of my jobs at Google uh, before it was trendy was on a trust and safety and um, you know a team that was focused on quality and, you know specifically product strategy around Google's display network and advertising network and you know you make all these fascinating very nuanced decisions about uh, you know algorithms what is you know this was crazy but what counts as porn versus art, right? Is a, is a nude statue in Rome or the blurred lines video with topless women? Like where, what is, what is art? What is porn? And it isn't cut and dry. And you have these YouTube algorithms that, um, that might amplify one or the other. And there's, there's no metadata. Same thing with copyright, same thing with a lot of different content. And I, I looked at, Google, I looked at Reddit, I looked at Twitter, and the you know things that get the most upvotes or the most likes get amplified the most, but or the most engagement, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are the most accurate or you know valid. And I think that's one of the big problems with the world today is that the person who says something not controversial, that's right down the middle is going to get zero likes. It's just kind of boring and expected. Expected. Someone who says something inflammatory or, or caustic, that's going to get ratioed and get a ton of likes and a ton of comments, and people are going to amplify it and retweet it. And that's the, the a broken incentive. What I really wanted to build and what we've built with Common Stock is using your brokerage data. So you can link any existing brokerage and using that as a meta layer of data to give indication for what, you know, what is, you know, we have something called like value, which is the uh, total number of aggregated portfolios that have liked the content, right? So if you get, in theory, a like from Warren Buffett should probably carry more weight than a like from my younger sister. Uh, As much as I love her, Warren probably knows more about markets. And so when he comments or when he likes something that I write, you know, there's these subtle incentives and, and weightings that can actually, that have never really been deployed in a social, uh, social network. Um, same thing with, with us on common stock. It's not necessarily about the number of followers you have, but the value of those followers, uh, you know, the, the, total portfolio value. So I was actually close to having a billion dollars of, of net portfolios following me recently. That's kind of been cut in half thanks to the market and crypto dropping. But that's this idea where, you know, even Elon's going through it. Elon's got, I think, 100 million followers on Twitter. And for him, you know, he, he seems to think that the vast majority of those are bots, like terribly low quality spam accounts. Would you rather have 100 million um, spam followers that are useless, or would you rather have a million incredibly high value, intelligent, um, insightful, real people following you? Uh, and so that's what Common Stock does: is, is it 
we've created this meta layer of data based on your actual market performance, how you invest, how you – do you outperform the market? Do you say smart things that other, in theory, smart people um, engage with? And that's where basically all of this uh, aligned with – at Common Stock, we are building – we're applying Google's PageRank algorithm to a social network uh, is the best way I can distill it, using the meta layer of data from your linked stock or crypto brokerage or exchange. Yeah, I'm still awaiting my like from Grandpa Buffett, but I think it's only a matter of time, David. But, but nonetheless, I think, you know, to, to your point, you've absolutely got to stand for something, either one side of the fence or the other, because that's how you get your supporters, you get your believers, and ultimately you you can be the face of change. Um, I think, speaking of change, if we cast our minds back to the beginning of 2021, where we had the GameStop and meme stock saga, it was almost the crescendo of the retail traders' revolution, David. What, what was activity like on the common stock platform at that time? Yeah, so that was absolutely hands down the craziest week of my life thus far. Um, we had just started, we had just released the beta of this current product in October. Things had been growing, again, you know, starting from a low number, but doubling month over month as retail participation really started to pick up in at the end of 2020. And interestingly, I actually predicted GameStop, not specifically GameStop, I wish, but if you think back to 2020, GameStop was not the first meme stock. It was the first to make it mainstream and get into the zeitgeist. But Tilray and Hertz and Kodak were all these you know, micro versions of GameStop. Uh, crypto, in a lot of ways, had some isolated meme assets. And so I started realizing that as more and more retail investors join capital markets – and you combine that with the information liquidity of of social networks, it's going to create this perfect storm where thousands, millions of people can coordinate what they're doing and all do the same thing. And this, of course, is happening not just in stocks, but you know, politics everywhere for for better or worse. That's the the world we live in now. Um, but fast forward to to GameStop, and we had started to get a lot of VC interest as, as the platform started getting a lot of attention and common stock started to take off. People started tweeting about it. It was a pretty radical new idea at the time. Um, and as and this was the, the last week in January when GameStop started really going crazy and, and for the first time ever, mainstream media and institutions realized, holy shit, retail investing is – is here. It's a thing. And so common stock was taking off this thing that I'd been building for, you know, four or five years quietly at the time, uh, before, even before leaving Google had all of a sudden started seeing this exponential insane growth. It, it, it actually, it did break literally everything. Our servers were melting, you know, all of the algorithms for what notifications send started spamming everybody. Um, and then, Every famous investor on the planet was calling, asking to invest. You know, every hedge fund manager, uh, every big VC. I was. It was 
not a lot of sleep. It was a very exciting time, and you're almost, to be honest, starstruck by a lot of these people who you've looked up to as investing icons for so long, and they're all texting you nonstop, calling CEOs, and, and you're just trying to keep the servers alive and prevent things from crashing. So, yeah, it was fun. I I wish I could have had... I, I texted my friend uh, Lee Jin, who was at Andreessen at the time, as that week started to pick up, I could sense something was happening. I was like, I wish I could get a documentary crew to my apartment because I just lived alone. But it was just so much fun, so exciting, uh, and you know, borderline manic at the time. Uh, but that was, and of course, not exactly sustainable. But it was a good example of you know putting retail investing on the map, and I think ultimately it was a long-term net positive for society. For society. Um, and I love the energy that that brought and the attention that brought and wanted Common Stock to be in a position to harness a lot of that energy because a lot of these were newer investors, harness that energy and focus it for you know more constructive approaches, strategies, and outcomes. But whew, that was – yeah, that was wild. I think there was a very famous VC went to a partner meeting at their house – uh, one of the top three big names, I just got so swept up in the moment over my skis. Uh, another executive from Common Stock was there and was texting me, like, take a breath, take a deep breath, slow down. Because I get so, like, worked into a, a, a frenzy and excited and said, hey, guys, I'm leading a revolution in markets. Get the fuck on board. And I said that, and then I was like, <laughs> that was – this is to one of the all-time greatest investors in history. He's like, that was – all right, maybe settle down, David. Like you're just getting swept up in the emotion of the moment. Um, it was – and we all had a good laugh. It was hilarious and absurd. Uh, but, yeah, what a wild wow. time. Wow, rallying the people. Well, listen, sounds very much like a case of hopping out of the frying pan and straight into the fire, David. I think that's – totally awesome and i think you know being right place right time being at the the forefront of this quote-unquote revolution and seeing it bringing in the masses and uh, you know leading the charge so to speak i think to follow on from this at least in times of volatility david how much influence does common stock have on driving the market when there is this abundance of information liquidity and that's always been one of the existential considerations for us is the original product was a group chat uh, for stocks. Think of it like Discord or Slack. And I actually actively wanted, of course, to prevent the ability for people to try to manipulate markets, create pump and dumps. And, of course, that's happening. It's more than ever and a lot of it in crypto, unfortunately, and I'm a big crypto fan. But the... We, you know, as we now have tens of billions of assets traded, or we just crossed 10 billion uh, on the platform, the one of the things that we need to figure out and make sure of is how do we ensure that everybody is making decisions for themselves? And this, a lot of this comes down to the algorithms and, you know, not letting people coordinate, not letting people try to scam systems. And a lot of this really is less technical and more built around the community norms and the expectations of the really healthy 
network that we've built from the ground up. And it, it took time to build those norms, but we, you know, that type of behavior is flagged by community members, flagged by moderators, and also is impossible because we have the data to see what people are buying and selling. And if you, if we were to see some sort of mass coordination effort, um, we'd be able to pick up on that. That hasn't happened. Um, but it is one of these things where, you know, you think back to Robin track, uh, which was tracking what people were buying on just Robinhood alone. And we have data like that, but across every brokerage. And we want to give that for the first time ever, give retail investors access to their aggregated data so they can make more informed decisions. But we want to do that in a healthy and constructive way so that we're not just saying all of retail is buying Tesla today. Everybody buy more Tesla. Um, but it's a it's an ongoing you know evolution in terms of building a product that has incentives that are aligned with our end user to ultimately just make them better investors. Well, congrats on recently crossing that 10 billion mark. I think that's terrific. And I think at least having closed your $25 million Series A back in October last year, I guess spinning from that, David, how is really Common Stock planning on expanding its position to provide the go-to community investing platform? Yeah, so we are are still being led by a lot of organic growth and building tools that let people share externally. Uh, you know, I think back to a lot of what made TikTok so absurdly successful was it was, you know, come for the community, stay for the tool, come for the tool, stay for the community. Same thing with, with Instagram, where you would go to Instagram to add a filter to your pictures that you couldn't add anywhere else. And then you might share that elsewhere to Facebook or Twitter, et cetera. And so what we're focused on is building a product that lets you create unique content based on your portfolio, your trades. You know, you can visualize your trades on a chart and you can turn that into content that you can share on common stock, but also elsewhere. And those viral growth loops and flywheels are what really drive our kind of exponential growth. And so that's where we're focused right now because that's where that's a lot of the more organic that's where we get more rabid addicted users. And you know, I, we 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 are international, would love to hop over the pond and get trading 212, get more support for brokers and exchanges over in London. I would love any excuse to spend some time uh, in your neck of the woods in South Ken or in uh in Europe. Uh, and and also, you know, we have I think 10% of our user base is in India now. So there's a massive pickup uh, in, in market interest from India. And then, of course, in, in Asia, you know, there's just an enormous demand for this. And that's also just a, a massively expanding market. So the beauty of this broker agnostic approach is that you build a social network and that foundation, there's very little marginal, you know, very little gross margin to adding support for a new market or a new brokerage, uh, right? We don't have to register and build a brokerage and a custodian in in Japan uh, or Korea. We can just support uh, the Korean brokerage that is the Korean brokerage there and add support for those currency, those currency fluctuations. And that should take about a week and we can expand there. So 
that's what I'm really excited to start tap. We haven't had we're still focused on just building that social network, but that's where I'm really excited about unleashing both unique content formats. The data that we have is the most fascinating thing on the planet that I we haven't scratched the surface, uh, and we can start predicting price movements based on what people buy and sell, you know, options, equities, ETFs, crypto, NFTs. Um, as you get a big enough data set, you can start really doing some fascinating things, and we're about to roll that out into the product and hopefully become one of the canonical sources for what retail is actually doing and thinking. Um, and then expanding into new markets. So those are the three of the the next the next goals for common stocks growth. I guess linking to that, we had Shomit Gosh, partner at Bold Start Ventures, on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned that look, premature scaling it is a big reason for failing founders and ultimately startups. My question to you, David, is look, how is common stock weathering the current market and what, if any, changes have you had to make? Yeah, so it's, it's funny. I was talking to Frank Rotman at QED. He's one of our amazing board members, early investors, just this morning. And look, these times are – this is my Super Bowl. I love the – you know, I my adult life has been forged in corrections. I – Started coding and really getting into computers in 2000, 2001 during the tech bubble when I started high school. I graduated from college in 2008 and 2009 right into the financial crisis. And and now common stock is – I've always said I've, I'm almost waiting for a correction, very much have been, to, to lean into growth uh, and come out the other side. And, and this is where – I think this is what I was talking about with Frank this morning because I'm just such a, a nerd and I, I love um, studying recessions, corrections, uh, you know, market cycles. They're just fascinating to me. But the I have thought of myself, you know, he had a great thread about peacetime CEOs and wartime CEOs. And we've had so many, this influx of capital and new talent in tech over the past five to 10 years, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of this too, but in these boom times, you know, everybody is, you know, look at fast as a great example. And there's so many examples of people thinking that the music's never going to stop and very over the top spending and really no sense of reality that we're building like businesses. And, the reality is that at common stock you know i've always taken i'm a i'm always kind of preparing for the worst i'm i'm on a relative basis very conservative compared to a lot of other founders and startups where i if i had my druthers would just hoard this pile of cash forever and like spend 10 to 15 to 20 years just tinkering and building with a tiny team because that's how i could absolutely guarantee success but the reality is that startups ultimately are just, it's all survival. It's just how long can you survive? And Mike Maples, who's our floodgate investor, let our seed, had a, has, has been really valuable as well, saying, you know, you always will spend the money that you have. And that's true. And I've fallen victim to that too. But just trying relentlessly over the past few years to avoid falling into those traps that literally every founder falls into leaves us in a really good position today where we we didn't get all that swept up in the 
in the uh, the frothiness of like growth at all costs, spend all your money. There's always more money available, and so we are in a really good position now and have years of of runway and are able to grow without spending all that money. You kind of take your medicine and learn your hard lessons. And it's, the reason I say it's really painful is because while we're not spending and we're not lighting money on fire, other companies in our space are raising at astronomical valuations and raising crazy amounts of money and lighting that on fire and get all this press and get all of this. They're buying all these users. And that creates this real challenge in the team and with your investors because everyone's like, hey, look at – we should be doing this. Like this company is doing so well, getting all this attention. This company is growing like crazy. But it's and, – and you know, I question myself constantly over the past few years. Am I doing the right thing? Should we be lighting money on fire? Should we be spending this money more aggressively? Um, but the reality is that that's all come crashing down for a lot of those companies where now – they didn't really learn the hard lessons of what drives a sticky user because they were just buying transient users. And they also – so their retention and their engagement numbers are terrible and that creates this death spiral. They don't have uh, as much money left or the ability to grow efficiently. And when we get into a time where CAC and, CAC and you know efficient use of capital is actually valued – this that's where I get excited because I have for five years thought of common stock as like we're just about to die. And at one point we did die on the operating table, ran out of money, and I liquidated my four hundred one k to get another one or two months of payroll. Um, and so this is like no sweat. We've got years of runway and a correction that is going to wipe out a lot of our competitors. It's going to make a ton of talent available. It's going to make a lot of the marketing cheaper. It's going to reduce a lot of the noise in our space. And, you know, volatility for our business is fantastic, right? This is a buying opportunity. I had a lot of cash on the sidelines for the past two years waiting for this moment. And you can go on Common Stock. You can see my portfolio. You can see this chart. I I think we're not out of the woods yet. I would imagine there could be another drop um, in public markets. But I bought the dip on Apple and Amazon and Google and a ton of companies I've been waiting to do at like 70% discounts. So again, I feel very fortunate. This is where, this is where CEOs really um, earn their keep is in crisis or in wartime. And I think a lot of companies that are got overvalued and raised too much money, it's this old trope, this cliche that capital can really be damaging. Um, it, it sounds so stupid. It's like, no, of course not. If I had millions more dollars, I could, easily make this work, but you end up just spending it more inefficiently or recklessly, and it can actually put you in, in worse shape. And I'll uh, give a great example. I was talking to Sarah Tavel right during GameStop. It was like, Sarah, these other companies are spending so much money buying users. Should I just do that and like juice our growth even more? And she said, David, whatever you do, stay out of your way and don't buy users. It's going to like all of these other companies are doing that, and it's temporary, and it seems seductive, but they're going to shoot themselves in the foot because you can pay an unlimited number of people to enter a conference room, but you can't pay them any amount of money to keep them there indefinitely. And so there's no amount of money you can pay. So that's where uh, you know, I resisted the urge to just buy a bunch of users and, and keep up 
on that rat race. And you know, now I feel like we're in, in great shape where we've got this foundation and are about to roll out three or four months of just unreal features that have been in the backlog kind of waiting while everybody else is struggling. It's this is when we get to thrive. I think showing that belief, you know, putting your own assets, your 401k on the table when things did get hard really shows a lot about you as a founder, David. And to your previous point, I'm also a long-time follower of, of Frank and equally enjoyed that thread. I know it relates nicely to that, to that famous quote of, look, it's not the strongest who wins, it's not the smartest who wins, but it's the one who is most adaptable to change. And I think that, that says a lot about CEOs during this turbulent time. I'd love to hear your take on the current fundraising climate, David. Is the compression of multiples and the re-emergence of down routes something that worries you? Uh, I, I don't, I, I don't know if it worries me as much as I just am a student of the game, and I think it is so fascinating. I love our investors. I love our VCs. I love VCs as a whole. I wanted nothing. I joined Google because I was dying to be, work at Google Ventures. The thing that I think is fascinating is that information liquidity, that's that momentum issue that we talked about on about that happens with Reddit. It equally happens with professional investors now, right? Because this is a world that's never existed before where every VC is, is you know, you get this, this herd mentality that's not necessarily wrong, but it's a double-edged sword where it creates all this frothiness, this, this bubbly behavior on the way up where valuations drastically exceed any, any rational fundamentals, 100x uh, ARR. And then on the way down, it is, falls just as precipitously, the sentiment, because every, it's doom and gloom. Everybody's saying, hold on to your cash. And everybody, you know, the, the VC market sees it up. And everybody's writing think pieces on how to um, extend your runway to last 24 months, which is it's just objectively interesting to watch that behavior. Uh, and but the reality, I think, is somewhere in the middle where that's we're probably oversold and over overly fearful because there's just so much unknown. But as inflate, if we can get inflation under control, and uh, you know, I think. I would imagine, as I study these, generally from peak to trough in recent recessions, it's been, I think, nine to 14 or 16 months on average in terms of corrections. And the two to three year real dip hasn't happened for a while. I know there's some charts that say that, and there's you know VC charts that VC dollars will lag public markets. But I don't know. If I had to bet... You know, I'm preparing for the worst, and, and we're making sure that we can we can uh, wait out any storm for two years and have the cash to do that. But I think I bet markets. I think everything recovers more quickly. If you remember back to the pandemic, there were months when that started where everyone, you know, doom is coming. Ackman goes on TV and says the world is ending, and that's where the emotion gets the best of not just retail investors, but professionals as well. Um, nobody's invincible from the momentum. And, and that's what the world has, of capital markets have become, not just public, but private. I, it's, we're momentum animals. And I just think it's fascinating to study how 
markets as a whole change and evolve over time. Um, and so anyway, to answer your question, it doesn't scare me. I, I actually enjoy it because as a, as a student, and it'll be really interesting to see how VCs evolve because the reality is that this is the best time for them to be buying. They can buy great companies, leading companies for very cheap and have five to 10 year time horizons, which is well beyond when this will be in our rear view. Yeah, my, I, I love that response. And I think, you know, pivoting slightly, slightly from that, David, I'd love to dive into a little bit on community and I'd love to hear why community is important to you and at least where do you see community driven investing going in the future yeah i think the community is important because as the world evolves for better or worse we don't have institutions traditional media telling us uh what to think or you know we don't have centralized information really anymore uh and that is both good and bad but you know when some when news happens you most people nowadays don't go to CNN or New York Times or Wall you know Wall Street Journal to to read the opinion piece they go to Reddit, TikTok, Twitter to see what are other people thinking or saying right we are status seeking monkeys we are herd animals basically and we are just we want to see what other people in our peer group are thinking how they're reacting and and that's what community is right and that's where we need to do a better job building tools for community that don't amplify the wrong things i think that's where we've fallen short i have a tweet that i haven't tweeted that will i will that will someday get me canceled but i feel like i'm allowed to say it because i it was me but over the past 15 years, we had all the people with the least social skills rebuild society on the internet. And it's causing some problems. Uh, um, and that's where we need to evolve, right? The incentive structure. But when you get community right, holy shit, it's the most powerful thing on, on the planet, right? That's where, that's where we get real engagement. And you know, if you think of your own behavior uh, in your own life, you spend the vast majority of your time and energy and attention on relationships with other humans. And at least most people do. Um, and that's right. That's where for common stock, we built this flywheel of financial tool and social network. And so, you know, you might come to check the data or check the financial tool and then stay for the community. And that's this really valuable flywheel that that drives common stock. And we're going to keep investing in that, um because it's working really well yeah i love that i'm a massive believer in community david whether it be related to to investing or sharing your thoughts um at least through through the likes of podcasting and 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 also twitter so i'm 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 right behind that at least looking into the future what does your strategic vision for common stock look like over the next decade yeah i the vision for common stock is a it's, it's and this is overused, but a Bloomberg terminal for Main Street, right? There's going to be one single platform or place where people go to interact with markets, and 
I think brokers and custodians will, I think they're already somewhat commoditized, right? They can handle the heavy lifting of dealing with money. And I also think that it won't just be stocks and ETFs and crypto and NFTs, right? We're seeing art, we're seeing uh, real objects, wine, real estate, bonds, debt. I think somebody will create this platform, and this is what I want Common Stock to be over the next five or 10 years. This is the communication news and data layer that sits on top of every financial institution and captures uh, and, and wins the the user and the investor the investor's attention because that's where they go to interact with their money and and that's that's what I think we'll definitely see that um, it's only a matter of time crypto makes a lot of that easier and more fluid and it's still absurdly early days and seeing all the mistakes as a result of that but that's what I'm excited about is um, you know marrying community with money transparency and trust and quality and any other buzzwords I can throw in there but that's um, yeah that's what I that's what I get fired up about when you capture each of the three prongs of the trident you mentioned there David you know communication news and data I think it, it really turns out to be this you know centralized hub and product that that really does tick all the boxes so I I, I can't see why why one would look elsewhere um, I guess moving moving from this what would be the greatest lesson that you've learned from building common stock so far? It's so hard to do this without just being a walking cliche. Um, the, the two biggest things that I've taken away from startups that nobody, nobody told me one, the challenge is not technical. Startups are 95 to 99% psychological and it's just managing your own head, managing the emotions, managing the difficulty of running through walls repeatedly, failing, not having confidence in yourself, having no clue what you're doing. Uh, you know, you're doing that for years uh, until, and like surviving until things start surviving a little more successfully. And it's a long slog, but nobody really knows what they're doing, not even VCs. Um, you know, when you look back to the VCs and, and, and public investors who were pumping money into SPACs a year ago, right? They like we're all kind of making it up as we're going. So the basically that, and you and you want to be as thoughtful as you can, but just knowing that the the psychology of it is is hands down the hardest, most difficult part. And tying into that is just, it's people. Business is just people. It is so easy to build a little side project when it's one, maybe two people, and you're just writing code all day and designing. Oh, that's that's awesome. It's so easy. Because code doesn't yell at you when you make a mistake. But when you when you transition as a CEO from you know, being the builder, doer, you know, coding and designing to building a team, managing people, managing emotions, you know, they're not robots. And that first point where it's all psychological is still very much there. Every startup is just an absolute shit show. Everything is broken. Everything is wrong. You're facing existential threats and death all day, every day, pretty much, it feels like that you, 
you're dealing with people and humans and trying to be a leader to get who, and they've joined your journey following your mission, which is something that, you know, I certainly take enormously to heart and it will never properly be able to appreciate, um, and communicate how little I, how much I don't take that for granted. But anyways, the, I think just how important and how hard it is to hire great people, find great teammates, um, and, and manage them. And it's, it's unbelievably hard even for the people with the greatest of EQ and social skills. Um, but that's the transition that for me was tricky as we grew from, you know, five people in an attic above a dentist to 50 people is you change your communication style. You change, you're more aware of dealing with people, making sure people are happy because when you make a mistake with an organization or people, they do yell at you and they do get upset and rightfully so. Um, And it's a new challenge. So anyways, the psychology of startups being 99% of the challenge and as part of that, the importance of finding great people um, and setting them up to thrive. I think you put it so beautifully there. You know, business is just people. And, and, and I think that's so true. And, and to go back to your point, the challenge absolutely is psychological, David. You know, people bring up and conjure so many perceptions of reality in their own minds, which is often very different from how reality actually is. So it's getting over that initial friction in your head and those continued frictions that you make up in your head and and then you'll do very, very well. What advice do you have for founders that at least want to start a venture in this economic climate, David? Um well, I think this is the time there's no I mean a lot of there's no good or bad time to start a company. A lot of incredible companies are forged during these times, right? And and just to touch on expand on what we just talked about, right? Imagine the people who worked at Amazon when it went down by 95%, right? And like we're seeing so many people at startups both public com- tech companies and and private companies see their valuations go down precipitously that like the emotional toll of that is you know earth shattering and so my advice to people who want to start right now is it's impossible to do and you you won't always do it but try to stay focused and you know take advice from Listen to advice from all of these smart people, from friends, from other founders, from VCs. Uh, And a lot of it's smart. A lot of it's good. But you have to be aware that you as a founder are thinking about this thing for 18 to 20 hours a day, awake and asleep, every day for years, in some cases, in perpetuity. Like this is the thing that you think about and live and breathe. And – the people who are giving you advice, even the greatest investors of all time, they're thinking about it maybe 30 minutes to 10 minutes per week. And so you have to have this self-confidence. Uh, and it doesn't mean you should you know, be cocky and act like you know everything. Um, you should definitely seek advice and opinions. But try to have the confidence as you think through things uh, and 
and focus on the vision that you know and want to like it might sound irrational it might sound crazy but that's how companies are born right if it was obvious and rational it would have already been done so that's where um that's the advice i would have is you know damn the torpedoes full speed ahead and be be methodical be conservative don't get swept up in the hype avoid the hype avoid the you know you're going to be pulled in a million different directions someone will say do this change this color hire this person take in that feedback and then have this mindset of fuck it i'm gonna do what i want um because i this is what i think is best for the company um what's the what's the mrs robinson no no it was um i'm trying to think of the tom cruise movie um Oh, at the end where he's just like, you know, sometimes you just got to say, fuck it and make your move. That just, you have to be this sociopathic, equally parts self-doubt, full of self-doubt and imposter syndrome and always thinking that you're about to die and you have no clue what you're doing. And simultaneously in a schizophrenic way, I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm so confident in this. I, this is going to take over the world. And that's just pretty much, I would say, where my brain is after five years of doing this nonstop, still every single day, and every other founder I've talked to, I would bet, Alex, you're the same. Uh, it's just, and probably most people in general, right, is the simultaneous, I have no idea what I'm doing, but also I know exactly what I'm doing, and acknowledge that, be comfortable with that, and let it ride. I love to term it, at least pulling from opposite directions you know where we we have that fixation on the bigger vision the strategic goal but at least in the micro you know we're we're learning every day and just trying to make it make at least ends meet in terms of you know how we how we manage and operate the process so big believer in that david trust me um i think that quote risky business was the film um but yeah what a oh, i can't believe i Cruise. Yeah, I can't believe I botched that one. Yeah, risky business, of course. <laughs> um, switching things over, David, a little bit to to more more general themes. I know you are a four time national collegiate squash champion. When did you start playing? And at least from this, what lessons have you brought across to the world of startups and business? Yeah, that's uh, one of the more random, circuitous parts of my story, but. I grew up in D.C. on Capitol Hill. I really played, well, for for you, a lot of football um, in in America, soccer. um, And that was my first sport. Then there was an after-school program that had a squash court near my elementary school. And so a group of us just started playing there. And I was a late bloomer. And as high school progressed, I was good at football, soccer, but squash and the quickness, you know, the speed and agility, I'm sure there's some metaphors on the ability to change directions quickly that I could spin into a startup cliche. Um, but I think actually the most apt lesson from squash was, and this is maybe a testament to my personality and the, you know, the founder mindset, I guess, I am this just rabidly hyper, some would say 
unhealthily competitive person and it can become obsessive. And so in high school, as I was getting better and better at squash, it was I would just go to the gym every single day from 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. practicing by myself and just wanted to win. And, you know, it's I don't that uh, that level of obsession is what it's the weirdest thing, but I revel in it and I love it. And I, I don't, these are usually just competitions with myself. It's not like I'm competing necessarily with everybody I run into, but I just love that, right? For me, the love of the challenge to try to win things, right? Whether it's squash, to put everything I have into being the best I possibly can. Um, and, and getting to the highest level in college and then winning the national championship. And then once I graduated, turned that focus on business. Um, I don't know. It's, I love it. It is for me enjoyable. I think of life as this great big game. Everybody has a different scoreboard and a different set of rules that are playing by that, that they're driven to. And for me, you know, when I'm on going on runs outside, I'm like, racing cars to intersections and dogs to lampposts that they don't even know that they're racing me. Um, it's always funny cause I'm like sprinting versus this dog, probably looking like an insane person. And for me, it's just fun. You know, you're going to lose constantly. You're going to win some. Nadal had a great quote the other day about, you know, someone asked him, what would you do if you lost this French open? Would you be devastated? And all of his fans are there like crying uh, and, emotional watching him potentially lose but for him it's the thrill of the competition you know you're gonna lose that's the whole point it's not fun to do anything if you're always winning um if it's always easy so um anyways that's that challenge is what i relish and i guess i have this weird uh add mindset where i can get hyper focused on squash or finance or, or startups at any given time and i love it well david i find it too when i'm walking in public i've got to beat this person to the end of the road otherwise you know what's the point <laughs> but, i mean i'm sure people are like this person is insane but yeah i don't know i don't know why like the i mean moving walkways at airports are just an absolute disaster for me it's a total playground. I'm just trying to pass I, it's yeah and i every single time I'm yelling slingshot engaged from Talladega Nights when I pass people. It makes zero sense. <laughs> but, you know, these are the little idiotic games I play with my own head. Quality film, quality film. <laughs> At least going from that, um, tell me, what does your perfect day look like, David? Well, um, well the perfect day is I'm usually up at 2 a.m. doing mindfulness retreats. No, I, I am usually up about 7 a.m., have coffee and read a few newsletters, pick up and catch up on markets and, excuse me, and startups. Um, and, and then we'll jump right into answering emails. We'll usually have a morning of two to three hours meetings with the team uh, or and interviews with just really inspiring, passionate people doing one-on-ones. I think one of the things that I get probably overly rewarded by or what I get overly inspired by is 
helping people learn and improve and grow on our team um, and, and seeing them overcome challenges and, and thrive, that's just the coolest thing ever. People have redirected their entire lives to join you on your crazy mission. And, and so that's rewarding for me to help, if I have any knowledge to impart, help be a mentor um, or help improve people's professional careers. And then we'll have a large uh, uninterrupted block of time to, you know, three or four hours to just tinker, design, play around with product ideas and experiment. That's my dream. Building, you know, building products, building beautifully designed features or tools, websites. I wish I was allowed to code, but I've been banned from our code base because of my spaghetti JavaScript. Um, and every time I ask for a Figma link so I can do some designing, I can hear the audible groans of the design team. And anyways, that's, um, that's great. And then, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's the majority of the day. I, ideally, I, I love meeting other founders. I love brainstorming. I love mentoring other early founders and ideally trying to invest in other early stage startups because I've made every mistake and it's, I would love to give back and pass the ladder back down to the people starting out. If I could end the day with a dinner or something with a early stage founder founder who's just getting started and help them navigate the uncertainty that I, that was once me knowing absolutely nothing. Um, and then usually I go for my weird nighttime owl. I go for a run and work out from like 10 to midnight usually. Um, cause that's when you get either DC or New York to yourself and you can go sprinting around the streets, racing random dogs without everyone judging you. Love it. What a day. <laughs> I think that's really, really tremendous. You know, could be a wolf, could be a dog, who knows? Exactly. I'm hopping over to questions from Twitter now, David. Um, Carl Harrison, general partner at Contrary, he has a few. Um, he firstly wants to know, what are you what are you most excited about in a bear market? Um, well, I am excited for the world to return to some rationality, really. And this is where the... We've had irrationality on behalf of VCs, on behalf of founders, uh, in their the you know marketing world, influencers, and employees. Right? We've had Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, everybody across the entire ecosystem has been wildly spoiled with absurd expectations over the past 12, 15 year bull run. It's no one's fault, but. I'm excited for thing that you know. I'm excited for the world to come back to reality, and you know maybe serving lobster for breakfast every day while Coldplay sings your you know elevator music for your opening meeting wasn't super sustainable for startups to be doing at the seed stage. Um, and so it you know to put it in tactical terms or practical terms. We, there's a lot of great talent that's available. There's a lot less noise in our world. There is It rewards the people who have been disciplined, and it will kill the potential competitors or the distractions that have not been disciplined. And that I get to, hopefully, knock on wood, uh, say, I told you so, um, that being disciplined and, and being more restrained over the past year to two years – 
now we get to step on the gas and thrive while everybody else is is in pain. Um, and that doesn't mean like again the reality is we're also we also got swept up in it, right? Not immune. We were we we're going to reduce we're all actively reducing spend and burn and making sure that we are um, bringing things back to rational levels. So uh, I just think that's a that's a business climate where I that I understand and can thrive in. I think the light money on fire world is just uncomfortable. It's not my normal state, and because I I know that it's not sustainable, and I get terrified that it would just be. Uh, burning, burning all our cash into the ground um, before we get like that's the. It's a very high beta move. You either blitz scale yourself into an acquisition at the peak, but if you don't, then you're hung out to dry and you get the downward slope. And so, um, yeah, I think the the bear market creates new new challenges, new adventures, but also massive new op- massive opportunities. He also wants to know, how has your primary job as a CEO changed over time? Yeah, I touched on this earlier. I started out by building a product, a tool, a, you know, a website, an app. Literally, sleeves are rolled up. I am in the code, in Figma. Back then it was Illustrator and then Sketch, actually. But you're the one building it and doing and you transition from building a product to building a machine that can build product and building an organization and just a totally different skill set. It's a totally different, uh, totally different job. And the learning curve is arguably steeper and more painful because, again, as I said, the machine that you're building has the ability to be angry at you, and that is uh, psychologically much harder, but you it's valuable and equally as fun um, if you take an academic view of needing to learn how to manage through that growth period where you go from everybody's in the same room, it's three people, and we're all working hard together, to now we're working from home, nobody knows how hard... I'm working or anyone else is working. You can't really lead by doing. You can't do it all. You have to set up uh, culture and institution norms and find talented people and build the process and machine that builds it for you, you that you are ideally not staying up until the wee hours of the morning designing things yourself. Um, but I do those because those give me energy still. So it's almost just like feels like I'm uh, – it feels like I'm breaking the rules when I do things like that because that's what I still love doing so much. But that's what the – if you're successful as a founder, you basically – success means creating bigger and bigger problems for yourself into perpetuity, which, again, no one prepares you for that. You're always like, oh, once I raise – I always said once I raised a million dollars of VC money, I was going to get a dog. Um, just kept pushing that out to $3 million, then $5 million, then – 20 million, then 40 million, all under the assumption that, yeah, once I get to this milestone, it'll be so much easier. And, well, it's been five years and it just keeps getting harder. But 
once you acknowledge that's the that's the fun of the ride, that's the roller coaster, then I think you can appreciate it more. Yeah, I'm with you there, David. At least building the systems of success and you know allowing these great people to to lead and take the reins and ultimately develop something great. He also wants to know what metric do you most enjoy tracking? The metric I most enjoy is time spent, average time spent per day on the platform because for me that's one of the best indicators. You know, there's the Google Google had a heuristic called the toothbrush test. Anything that you use twice per day is probably something that you're going to be successful in. And for me, if people are spending that much time per day, because time is the most valuable resource on the planet, the only thing you can't get more of, and that's what they're choosing to spend their time on, and it helps that it's continuing to grow, classic network effects, that that keeps going up as the community grows. So, of course, that just makes me happy to see. And then the other one uh, that is actually not currently going up is the total assets on common stock um, just to see the scale of people and portfolios and knowledge that that are that people are entrusting to common stock to our team is inspiring and sometimes daunting and but it's it's exciting to know that as we you know we're still have barely scratched the surface and we're already in the billions and tens of billions imagine what happens when we continue growing we get hundreds of billions and you know the magic trillion attached that's i just am a massive data nerd and god that is there's so much fun data to poke around in there so that's what i love tracking tremendous now i do have a tradition on this podcast david where at the end of the show each guest answers a question that was left by the previous guest now last week we had gabby goldberg investor at tcg on the pod their question to you david is would you back travis from uber if he were to start a new venture given previous ethical concerns massive fan of gabby and tcg crypto uh the entire team they're awesome the a great question if you'd asked me you know a year ago i might say yes and i think a year ago we were in this climate where it was all about getting attention and sticking out from the crowd i also think second time founders have just learned so much but today when it's less about just relentless sheer attention gathering and Ideally, more rationality. You know, I look at Elon in the same way, and I'm a longtime massive fan of Elon, just in awe of some of the companies and impact that he's had. It's just, it's crazy to think about. But it's also wild to see the, you know, the chaos that's ensuing with the Twitter deal and some of the, you know, what now I would, I would have to think twice and probably wouldn't um, back people who, might not have the most high standards of of ethics. Um, I don't know. So I, the, my I, my answer is a no. I would not. Very interesting. Well, I know, Davidson. We've 
actually come to the end now. Um, we arrived here to cut through the noise, and listen, we sure as hell did, along with some terrific anecdotes, my friends. So, listen, it's been an immense pleasure having you on. Uh, this is definitely the, the longest show yet, but I'm so glad we got the opportunity to do it. I think in a sign of very topical, but uh, thank you so much for the invite, and it's been just absolutely awesome jamming. Really appreciate it.